Over the next few weeks, we're going to continue in this month of February with some topical sermons still, as I mentioned to you last week, I'm looking toward the book of Acts and starting in the month of March. But uh, I'm excited over the course of the next few weeks, Pastor Stewart's going to be preaching a number of these messages on sanctification, on correction and framing correction with our understanding of God's grace, and also um, one that I know none of you struggle with, but I do once in a while, is making plans and then having God interrupt those plans in some way, right? Uh, out of the book of James, you know, when we make our plans. So some things to, to look forward to and be praying about. And uh, so it is, it is that big time. It is that, that wonderful time. And I know for some of you, you're thinking, Super Bowl, right? It is night. That's exciting. I'm thinking of something even less glorious, and that is the Iowa caucuses are tomorrow night. Wow, that's thrilling, huh? Tomorrow night, sort of the um, unofficial kickoff, if you will, of, of the 2020 presidential campaign in Iowa. The reality is we know presidential politics is a 365-day-a-year, 24-7 sort of thing. We are surrounded by it, overwhelmed by it sometimes. Uh, it just seems to go on and on. It's impossible, especially, I think, in this area, to sort of disengage from politics and government, those sorts of things. Um, I've been personally a bit of a political junkie throughout my life. Uh, I, was, I was class vice president back in, in ninth grade, when I was my freshman year. This was my last winning election. I needed help for campaigns after that. I, uh, I was in my senior year in high school, I was one of the only people to have a presidential campaign bumper sticker on my car. I mean, that's how much of a nerd I was when it came to politics. Um, about 20 plus years ago, I ran very unsuccessfully for a school board seat in the little town in which we lived. Most people couldn't get past the last name, much less vote from the guy. And then uh, from 2008 to 2017, worked on or around Capitol Hill in some form or another, reporter, staffer, campaign aide, one of those sorts of things. So, something that people don't cherish one way or another, one of those positions. But um, one of the great blessings of, of having been able to, to work in government and in politics is the, the friendships and the awareness that there are scores of good and godly people who love Jesus Christ, who put Christ first, who are striving to serve him in a challenging environment. Um, they are exalting Christ and seeking to do that in the places where they are, whether they are elected officials or those who are serving those officials. Even if you're not interested in politics and you're intentional about avoiding it, you are still touched by government in some way. The, the laws that are enacted, the actions or inactions of our political leaders, all of those things have some bearing on your life, whether it's leaders at the county level, state level, or, or federal level. Um, and, and in fact, we've seen this in this age of outrage that we live in. Politics has huge potential for turning people into enemies, for stoking up anger, for uh, encouraging fear and anxiety about various issues. We see this all the time. There's a research firm that's been looking at the gap between Democrats and Republicans, sort of the partisan gap for about 30 years, and their conclusion, pretty obvious, animosity and division are growing with every election cycle. But the the, the difference, the shift seems to be, it's, it's not just that I believe that this party is good and I strongly approve of this party over another. The problem now is the, the large and growing number that believe that the other party is 
immoral or extreme or unpatriotic or dangerous. That, that, that view that says the other is essentially now in the category of an enemy. We are seeing each other not merely as opponents with differing political philosophies, but as people to be defeated in some way. And that's where we as believers in Jesus Christ need help. That's where we need to look to Scripture for wisdom. That's where Jeremy got us started on, the, on 1 Corinthians 13 in, in, in the call to worship. If, if we are to love our neighbors, then, then we're to do that even in the political realm as well. So that's what we're going to think about for a few minutes this morning. Um, even when we are, are, are treated in a nasty way, even when we feel like we are on the the side that's being picked on in some way or, or, or there's partisanship, we, we need to respond without that sense of bitterness or fear. And so how do we do that? How do we interact as individual Christians and as a local church when it comes to government and to politics? And as I thought about it this week, I felt like it might be easiest to sort of just look at three categories, three kind of silos here that, that all sort of interact with each other and, and consider how the Bible addresses their relation to one another in the, in the big picture of politics. And those three would be government, the local church, and individual believers. There's, there's some distinctions here that I want to make in particular between those last two, but understanding that we're looking at government, the local church, and individual believers. We, we see from Scripture, and we'll see this specifically with government, that human government and the church are institutions that were ordained by God, that they are His doing, it is His work. They have been designed by Him. They have functions that influence each other, but government and the church are separate entities, and yet there's, there's some bumping together and there's some overlap. Individual Christians obviously make up the church. The body of Christ is all individual believers together. And so no illustration is perfect. My little picture up there isn't perfect. You could certainly take individual believers in the church and say they are all one and the same. But for the purpose of talking about politics, that's where we're going to make some distinctions between local churches and individual believers. But these three all sort of intersect with each other at one point or another. And that's what I want to try to look at. Let's start in Genesis 9 this morning. Uh, right near the beginning of your Bibles, Genesis chapter 9. There are several places in Scripture that give us the, the understanding of God's establishment of human government, of civil government, and, and this is one of them. Genesis 9 is just post-flood. The, the creation has been plunged into sin and chaos in Genesis 6. God brings this flood across the earth, and now in Genesis 9, it is after the flood, God is establishing a covenant with Noah and with his sons, and he says to Noah and his sons that they are to be fruitful and multiply and, and to fill the earth. And then he speaks of what we call dominion, that they are to have dominion over the earth. So when it comes to sort of order in all of this, God is the ruler. He establishes man now to be the ruler over the created order. And then after affirming man's rule, he now discusses sort of, the, the potential for chaos within humanity, that there needs to be some kind of order that governs within humanity to put something in place to prevent sinful human beings from descending into the most depraved chaos, as was the case prior to this in Genesis 6, prior to the flood, when, when the earth, God is contemplating destroying his creation at that point because it is depraved so wickedly. So in chapter 9, verse 5, God is speaking to Noah, and he says, Genesis 9, 5, And for your lifeblood, I will require 
a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This may seem familiar. If you remember back last fall when we looked at the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment, the commandment to not murder, we looked here in, in Genesis 9, twice in verse 5, God speaks of a reckoning, that there will be a reckoning required for one who murders human life. And he makes it very explicit when he says, I will require a reckoning. That word reckoning could also be the idea of accounting. It is, it is I will require a judgment to be made in this case, that human life is made in the image of likeness and likeness of God. Therefore, the, the, the reckoning or the judgment is what, what we've described here as we looked at last fall as the death penalty. It is, it is essentially what he's saying here is the establishment of human authority now to respond to the taking of human life. So this is God granting to man the authority for justice, and I would say also consequently to that for protection of human life. That, and we'll see that as we look through this. But, but God is, has just said that in this dominion, that, that part of what our dominion is, is we are permitted by God to kill and to eat animals. But when it comes now to killing of human beings, he is very precise here that I require a reckoning in the shedding of blood. If someone murders another human being, then there is a reckoning for that life. In fact, three times in here he says require. The offender, be it a person who kills another person or an animal that kills a person, shall face some kind of reckoning for destroying human life. And so right from the start, then you really get two purposes for this institutionalizing of this authority. One is justice, the, the, the carrying out of the accounting or the reckoning, but also consequently to that then is the idea of protection, that man has the authority to give the most severe reckoning for the most severe crime, presumably lesser reckonings for lesser punishments for lesser crimes. But in addition, that judicial power also tells those who would consider evil, who would consider murder, that now there is there is an authority that is called to intervene, that is called to punish you should you act in this way. And so there is some level of deterrence, protection. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, all, all the way almost to the end of the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2, and another one of these passages that helps us to see Scripture describe government and, and the role of government, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll look at verse 13. Peter saying to believers who, by the way, are suffering in persecution under governments that are opposed to them, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So here in 1 Peter... Similarly, we could look in, in Romans 13, the opening verses of Romans 13. God sanctions government to, to punish evildoers, thereby to exact justice, but also then to deter evil and protect citizens. But Peter also mentions here this idea of doing good, that the governor is sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so there is some acknowledgement here 
by the, the government of, of, of what is helpful for society, what is, what is fitting, what is good in some way for the society at large. And so the Lord appoints kings and governors to not only punish evildoers, but to praise those who do right. Reiterated again by Paul in Romans 13 when he says the ruling authority is a minister of God to you for what? For, for good. That, that even though we, we, we tend to sometimes look at um, government not necessarily in this sense, it, it is God's design that they be there to, to help promote something that is good in society. And in fact, when we're called to pray for our leaders in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the, the whole notion there in the prayer is that in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. There's, there's fruit that benefits from that praying, not only praying that God would save those who are lost, would give wisdom to our leaders, but so that it would also lead to a tranquil and quiet life, that they would act according to godly wisdom. So government is designed by God to execute justice, to provide protection, and to establish what we might describe as sort of common guardrails for good society. So for instance, um, when, when you drove here this morning, you hit stoplights along the way. Stoplights serve the benefit of protecting us, but they also are sort of those guardrails that sort of impose a level of courtesy at intersections. Courtesy that says, I, I really want to go first. I believe I'm more important than you, and I really have to get somewhere in a hurry. But the light now says I can't. I have to let somebody else go first. And so it's, it's government doing something that ultimately promotes good society in that sense, or at least benefits the common good, if you will. Clearly, not, not all rulers or governments are good. Many have zero regard for this mandate. Nonetheless, God has ordained government for our good, to impose order, civility, justice that benefits us, to provide protection for us, to keep the peace. By doing all that, government preserves then this environment where people can live in freedom and safety. And, and, and that's important because if you go back to Genesis 9, where we just looked and saw him establishing that authority, the, the prelude to that is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. A, a good mandate from God, the context in which that is done is God's protection of life and its dignity through the establishment of this human authority to do that. And so government has that benefit to us. And here in America, we often give thanks for the government that we are subject to, that protects our freedom to be here this morning, to, to worship God freely as we do. Uh, protecting an area of religious freedom is, is part of the, the design of God for a function of government. That, of course, then reminds us of, of what is another biblical reality, and I, I don't think I, I could point to a number of scriptures on this, but I, I think you'll concur with me on this, and that is that every leader, every king, every governor, every president, whatever level of authority that you want to talk, are all sinners, some are redeemed by God's grace, but they are sinners who are governing, ruling over sinners, that we as subjects to that government are all sinners. Some redeemed by God's grace, but there are no perfect governing authorities, no perfect government. All governments are subjected to some degree or another, are infected rather, I should say, with, with sinful tendencies and, and, and with temptations toward idolatry and injustice. Here in the United States, we, we love our form of government, but we also know that the founders 
purposely made individual freedom to be a very high distinctive of, of how our government would function. And the Declaration of Independence says governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. So the, the, the government derives its power from consent from individual citizens. A couple of implications of that. One is it, it is an emphasis on, strong emphasis on individual freedom. And when there is that kind of emphasis on the, the individual governed giving consent and having freedom, then there's a strong emphasis on responsibility. With freedom always comes responsibility to use that freedom well. That's why John Adams' famous quote about the Constitution, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Precisely because when you, you emphasize freedom, if, if that freedom then is, is, is laced with full of immorality, then, then that freedom is, is used for evil. Then. And so it, it was a, a wise caution. In a fallen world, when you shift the source of authority for government from God, which is what we believe we see in Scripture, God ordains governments. God is the ultimate authority. He is the one who lifts up and brings down rulers. When you shift that authority from God to the individual citizen, what often results then is, is selfishness. Because ultimately then, if, if you're going to ask me who I'm most concerned about, wh whose rights and freedoms that I most care for and want to see preserved and, and flourish, it's, it's me. It's, it's myself, because we are selfish individuals. And, and so there is that temptation. And since governments cannot change human hearts, then they are left to try to find ways to either restrain that selfishness or, as political parties have done since the beginning of political parties, appeal to that selfishness. That's why political campaigns usually aren't, they're not saying the hard stuff for the most part. They're not saying, hey, if you elect me, it's gonna be really hard and, and we're gonna have a difficult run here because I'm gonna have to do about a dozen really hard things and you're probably not gonna like them. Oh, super. No, a political campaign is, what is it that I desire and how can you meet those desires? And those desires will, will differ across the spectrum and so, so do the appeals to that. Political campaigns are this string of promises. Now, now, now don't get sidetracked at this point thinking, well, I know what he's talking about. That's the other party that does all that stuff and, and not mine. No, that's, that's not it. They all appeal to selfishness. The point is governments are sinful. They are sinful people we are sinful subjects to our government. And so that enters into all of this and how we relate to government. David Innes writes, what is surprising is that after man's fall into sin, God did not appoint the unfallen angels to order our affairs and tend us like sheep. He appointed fallen human beings to govern, to instruct and restrain their peers in sin. The history of the Old Testament then shows us that. Good kings, bad kings, good nations, empires that, that destroy others, that are simply on, on a conquest for land and enslave people, and, and we see that immediately throughout Scripture. And so government is established and ordained by God to carry out justice, to punish evildoers, and then to establish sort of the, the guardrails of good society, the things that help us to live in relative peace with one another. And God uses governments. You simply have to look at, at, at Jesus Christ in Galatians speaking to Christ coming at the fullness of time. We often look at that in terms of just the historical context at the time of the coming of Jesus. It is a miraculous work of God ordaining certain pathways through a government. He comes and, and there is 
peace throughout this massive geographic region that has not seen that kind of sustained peace over centuries. And now the Roman army is able to impose that peace. It is the Roman government that brings about that peace. The Roman government that goes on a road building project and, and makes it so that the gospel can spread. And the Roman government that, that imposes the Greek language so that there's this easy spread of the gospel. All of that God in his kindness using this human institution now to accomplish his purposes. And, and, and the irony, of course, is that it's then Pilate and the Roman governor, who is the Roman governor, who then crucified Jesus Christ, going back to our point about the, the sinfulness of government. So we know the gospel flourishes even when there's not good roads and similar language. It flourishes even under persecution. And so that's uh, good government is not required for that, but God ultimately uses government for his purposes. Let me, let me shift here now. Let's think about local churches. And I want to be really purposeful here in distinguishing between local churches, the body of Christ as assembled together in local gatherings of believers, and individual believers in Jesus Christ, because there's there's difference in how those two interact with politics and the government. For the one, that engagement may be fairly broad, but for the other, it's actually quite narrow. When we talk about the local church, our engagement in politics is narrow by necessity because of our purpose, because of ultimately what we are called to do. When we think about what we are here to do as, as Grace Bible Church, disciples making disciples, we, we understand that the, the Great Commission, the call to make disciples is paramount to our purpose. We are called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who do not know him, to seek to persuade them to believe in Jesus Christ, to those who are become believers, to, to teach them, to equip them, to teach them in all that, that Christ commanded and help them to grow in the image and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, and so within all of that, there's what we're doing, corporate worship, there's fellowship, there's corporate prayer, there's church discipline, there's the Lord's table and baptism and uh, sacrificial love for each other and hospitality and benevolence and all of these things that ultimately fall under that umbrella of making disciples, making then and growing those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And we must keep that primary purpose in mind as a church as we wade in and around the realm of politics and how we engage with politics. There are issues that come up in the, the, the governing of our country that the Bible clearly addresses and which we must boldly speak. We must not be afraid or apologetic when there are places that Scripture has spoken and, and, and the government is seeking to legislate or not. God requires justice. He hates he is a champion of those who are suffering and weak and in poverty. This, these things are throughout Scripture. God speaks of sexuality in terms of it being marriage between one man and one woman, and, and Scripture is fundamentally clear on that. God stands for life, human life from conception in the womb throughout its existence. God speaks of life being made in the image and likeness of God and therefore protecting it and showing it dignity. We see our culture, when we talk about perverting the individual freedom sort of what can become an idol, we see that particularly in these areas. When it comes to sex, when it comes to life, that individual freedom perverted into selfish idolatry that says, I can do whatever I want. 
It's my body, and so don't, don't preach some morality to me. Don't tell me about marriage and, and this kind of stuff. I can be who I want, with what I want, do whatever I want. And then the, the same thing now, even the argument when it comes to the unborn child, the, 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 the side that has argued for abortion has, has had to shift based on medical technology to say, okay, it's a given. It's a human life in there. But nonetheless, it's the higher good, so-called higher good, of the woman's freedom and ability to make personal choice because we're a society that, that relishes individual freedom and choice. And that's become the, the fundamental point of that argument. And, and, and all that to say, issues like justice and life and sexuality that have biblical clarity, we need to speak to. We need to not be afraid to say, this is what the Word of God says. We're, we're, we're desiring to compel you to, to see the truth in Scripture, and we should not be afraid. But when it comes to parties or candidates or positions on legislation that don't have that clear of a biblical mandate, we may take stands as individual believers, we may participate as individual believers, but as a church, keeping our primary mission in view, we should not endorse. That, that is not our place as a local church because of what we understand to be our ultimate function and calling. Jonathan Lehman, if you want to read more on this, I, I just really highly recommend, I think I put it in the notes in the bulletin, his How the Nations Rage book. Jonathan Lehman writes, I have watched churches unite their names and therefore the name of Jesus to a Supreme Court nominee, to presidential candidates, and to legislation in Congress. And nearly every time I want to ask, are you sure? Do you really want to stake the reputation of Jesus and the gospel to that nominee or candidate or reform? He's not blatantly saying, no, no, don't do it. He's saying, stop and think about this a minute. Do you, do you really want to? Have you, have you counted the cost on this one? Because the problem, especially in today's climate and, and the outrage that surrounds politics, is that there are people who are going to be on the other side of that. And when they see the local church endorsing in, in, in some way an issue that's not necessarily got a clear biblical mandate to it, they not only see the church taking a stand, but they see that now as opposition. They now see us as being on the other side, as, as the ones to whom they must go to war with in, in some way. It's one thing for you personally to support a candidate, to endorse good and godly candidates, and, 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 and we'll talk about individual believers. We, we have a role there, but it's another when a church does it because effectively what we are doing is we're just putting one more stone in the way of the unbeliever to listen to us and to give us an ear to hear what we have to say because we've now put one more object in the way to make it that much harder to understand that preeminently Congress matters, but King Jesus and the gospel are supreme. It matters so much more. We're called to make disciples of all nations, to be a gathering place of believers for prayer and worship, and we should not create unnecessary stumbling blocks. We should not look like we are lobbying for one party or another. We we manage to offend people, hopefully, by the preaching of the gospel. If we cause them to stumble because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sin, or even because of what biblical truth clearly says about where they are in life or what they're doing, and, 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 and truth is speaking to that, and, and we offend on that count, then so be it. That's when we, we need to trust God at that point. But let's not even hint that having an R or a D connected with you will make you feel more at home here. As a church, if we're going to 
unequivocally, clearly teach what the Bible says about immorality, injustice, racism, or, or whatever it might be, for the sake of our testimony for the gospel, we also dare not look the other way when evil is practiced by those who are in authority. We don't demand sinless perfection because we don't stand in the place of being able to do that, but we should not ignore it when even our leaders traffic in unapologetic sin. In, in, in the same way, the church should not take part in the, the blame-shifting methodology that so goes on constantly in politics, where I, I, I worked for, for members and I worked on campaigns, and I know how this works, when, when the person that you work for steps in it in some way and says something they shouldn't say, does something that is truly wrong, says something that is really out of place, instead of what we're, what we're taught from Scripture at that moment, right, is repent, confess, you know, all those things that we're taught from Scripture. And in the political world is, oh, no, wait a minute. Look back at what, what that person on the other side said just, just two years ago. I can show you the videotape, what they said. And when, and when they come to grips with that, then come back and, and talk to me. That is, that is Garden of Eden-like blame-shifting. That, that, that says, I'm not taking responsibility for this. You need to focus on somebody else and, and their sin. And if we, are, if we are standing for righteousness, we must not shrug our shoulders at repeated unremorseful sin, no matter who does it. We need to be willing to speak. If anything, we ought to be humble enough to acknowledge the deadly enslaving power of sin and, and to pray for and urge repentance and to call for righteousness that would come only from Christ and their desperate need for the gospel. If you remember, the command to pray for our leaders in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is really quite specific in what it's focusing on. We, we have a tendency sometimes, I think, when we talk of praying for our leaders to think of God, you know, God bless the, the, the leaders, and yet 1 Timothy 2 says that such prayer is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. It's focusing on the, the power of God to save, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You and I do not know the heart of our Republican president nor the heart of our Democratic governor, but we are called to pray for them and especially to plead in prayer that if they are not saved, that God would graciously bring them to repentance that he would turn them toward him in a full embrace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a local church, we teach, we pray. When politics intersects with God's truth, we speak truth without fear. But first and foremost, we, we need to stay on message. We need to stay focused on making disciples of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what will save them for eternity. So let's talk about individual believers and politics. And I think this is where we have a great deal of freedom and responsibility. The American system of government gives you and I the, the privilege of voting, of advocating, of supporting, financially supporting candidates, of speaking for and against legislation, of getting involved, working in, even running for office and serving in some way. We know that government is ordained by God to enact justice, to punish evil, to advocate for that which is good. And if that's all the case, there is no one more suitable for speaking to those principles than sincere believers in Jesus Christ. 
And, and so I, I just want to encourage you here and advocate for engagement. We should not withdraw from the public square, at, at the very least, because Jesus told us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So we have no excuse here to, to completely withdraw. At minimum, we should be praying. But more than that, followers of Jesus Christ have a unique understanding from, from God's grace of wisdom and compassion and mercy and justice. And if you have the opportunity and the skill to use the gifts that God has given you and a sweet understanding of the grace and mercy that God has shown you, are as, as equipped as anyone out there to serve in some way and to speak to those things in the public square. And we do so with eyes wide open. We know that the political environment is as harsh and divisive as it has ever been and the cost for engaging in that system and standing on beliefs that are rooted in God's word continues to get higher. There is a growing price to be paid for speaking up for Christ in school, workplace, among family, amongst friends. One of the things that we have uniquely in common with the government of, of Jesus' day and Paul's day and Peter's day is this sort of pluralistic, inclusive approach that says, I like it when you like all religions and you say all religions are good, it's that, it's that view that says there's really only one way and that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's where we are. That's where the, the word of God has put us to be people who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation by faith in Christ alone and we shouldn't kid ourselves that there is an increasingly high cost in the public square for believing and declaring those things. But we ought not just withdraw and huddle away from that. However, therein lies what is the great challenge now. Because we, we do face such intense opposition, because there is a growing hostility, if you will, toward biblical Christianity, this is where that temptation for individual believers comes in to return evil for evil, right? To, to, to be just as nasty back in our rhetoric, in our social media posts, that lure to be vengeful and respond, that, that, that notion that somehow forgets that these are people who, just like me, are in need of God's grace, and they are not just faceless, stupid people because they believe this. That, that's, I'm making sure that's in quotes if anybody's listening to this on audio only. Make sure I don't offend somebody there. We, we need to see these people as people who are in need of God's grace. And it's hard, it's hard to use the word dialogue anymore, to, to talk about what happens in the world of politics. It, it's, it's just sort of the, the, the shouting at one another, and, and you watch cable news. Um, there, there is no incentive for politi politicians to try to find common ground or to admit wrongdoing or be gracious when they were attacked. When, when I was in political communications, there was a consultant very wise in political consulting, worked with a lot of major campaigns, and he used to chide me on my writing when I would write about what the other guy was doing wrong, and, and he would chide me for not being harsh enough against the opponent, and his line he used to tell me was, Doug, remember, the opponent is always wrong about everything. Don't forget, the opponent is always wrong about everything, so stop with these sort of squishy lines that say, so-and-so may be okay here, but they're really bad here. No, he's wrong about everything. That, that's the dominant theme in political communication nowadays, that the other side is, is completely wrong and, and completely on the other side of life. And, and, and it, 
When we approach it that way, that the opponent is always wrong about everything, it makes for a very hard context in which to bring to bear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's really hard to love our neighbors, love our enemies, if that's the approach with which we take to this realm. So here, I just want to finish. I got five quick, just paragraph or two on each one. So this will be very quick. Five quick practical commitments I want to challenge you and I to make during this 2020 year. Number one, pick your battles with the gospel in mind. Is this political statement that I am about to post on my Facebook page or wherever I'm going to put it, is this political statement helpful? Will it encourage an unbeliever or a young believer to hear me out on more important things like the gospel, or will it discourage them in some way? So I'm, I'm, I'm keeping the gospel in mind. I'm, I'm not, not trying to censor you here, and I'm not trying to say, oh, just nothing but puppy pictures on your Facebook page. But you do need to think about what what will this do to a weaker believer or to an unbeliever, and does it, does it somehow make it harder for me to talk to him about the love of God and Jesus Christ? My fellow elders and I all have thoughts and opinions on things like tax policy and immigration and guns, but you are not generally going to hear us standing around on Sunday morning giving you our insights on all of those things. Not that you'd need to hear them anyway, but that's not because we're trying to hide something. It's because the last thing we would want to do is somehow give any suggestion that, that one of these is somehow more important than loving and leading and shepherding the flock. That's where we are called to, even as we engage here as individual believers. Is, 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 this, is this helpful? Could I, could I end up saying something that would be poorly spoken or misconstrued in some way or, or something that would put another stone in the way? Pick your battles. Will this help or hinder my witness? Is, is it a mandate? Is it clear in Scripture that this is the way to do it? Or is, this a, is there a preference issue? Or is there some gray here? And I've got some room to think about and appreciate others' perspectives. Number two, always reflect your citizenry in Christ's kingdom. Yes, we are Americans. Yes, we are thankful to live in a country that provides the freedom that it does. Yes, we are grateful to all of you who serve in the military for what you do to help protect those freedoms. And, and, and we love what, what we have here in terms of God's blessings on this country, but ultimately our primary allegiance is to Jesus Christ. It is to King Jesus. And so how we vote, how we advocate, how we take stands on issues, how we support others, all of that, how we argue issues should first and foremost reflect that we are disciples of Jesus Christ and we are loyal to him above all else. We are resting in him. Uh, this fallen world and its perfect governments still ultimately belong to that one true king who rules over all and we have the privilege of serving him. Third, engage with words that edify words that build up. At all times, in all conversations, regardless of how emotional the person on the other side is, regardless of how bombastic their language is, aimed, it seems, in our direction, we are still called to a different standard in terms of speech. Proverbs says that our words should be healing. They should be chosen carefully. They should not be thrust out there. Proverbs gives the picture of thrusting like a knife, words just put out there that just, that just intend it to hurt, and they're done rashly. Ephesians 4, great passage on this. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth or your keyboard, but only that which is helpful for building one another up. No unwholesome word. That which builds others up and meets their need in the moment. Political communication is full of anger and insult. The opponent is wrong, misguided, dangerous, and God help us 
to take out the malice and the slander and the insult and the mocking, speak truth where it needs to be spoken, speak to issues with what we believe is, is right, focus on an issue, don't make people into enemies. Don't even give them the slightest hint that, that, that they somehow are an object of our wrath. Number four, pray regularly for your leaders at the local, state, and federal levels. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4 describes it simply. What it describes there is we are essentially praying for salvation of those who do not know Jesus Christ, praying to God our Savior that they would come to a knowledge of the truth. So we are pleading with God that if, if our county supervisor or our state delegate or whoever it might be is unsaved, Lord, would you save them? Would you bring them to repentance? Would you open their eyes and cause them to embrace the gospel? And then we are praying for God to give wisdom to those who are in authority so that we might reap the fruit the benefit of tranquil and quiet lives because of them acting wisely. How often are you praying by name for those individuals? And I would encourage you, if you're not already, is to stop and look up who is your supervisor in Fairfax or Prince William County? Who is your state rep? Who is your state senator? Who's your member of Congress, your senator? It's Google, this is an easy one. Get their name, stick it on your list, and on some kind of regular basis, pray that God would be at work in their lives. If it's salvation, if it's growth as a believer, whatever it is, pray that God would be at work according to his good sovereign will. Finally, the last one, number five, rest in your king, and in the future he is already secured. Let me read from Psalm 46. It begins this way, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, therefore we will not fear. You may need to change that and say, therefore we will not fear, though a Democrat is elected. Therefore we will not fear if Trump is reelected. Whatever that is, you, you put in there what you need to put in there, but you need to come back to saying, God is my refuge and my strength. And, and whatever happens on that Tuesday in November doesn't change that, doesn't fundamentally alter my life because I know that God is my refuge and my strength and I rest in him. We will not fear because Jesus is king and Jesus is the one who ordains governance. Jesus is the one who raises up and brings down leaders according to his purpose. And so we ultimately rest in the one righteous, glorious king who gave his life as a ransom for our sin, who died and rose again, and who we know is coming again to reign over this creation and to lead it all. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we have a glorious, glorious hope and future in Christ, in your Son. Father, whatever happens on Monday night in Iowa or on some other night not too far away in South Carolina or here in Virginia or in Richmond or in Fairfax County, whatever our governing authorities do, Lord, we, we don't want to be careless about these things or ignorant of them, but Lord, we also do not want to fear. We pray for your help to to rest in you as our refuge and strength and to know that you are in control. Help us to speak when there is truth that needs to be spoken to. Help us to be courageous believers who would hold out the truth of Jesus Christ and your word. Lord, help us to, to also do so in love. Help us to be unique by the way we will love our neighbors. 
that we will participate in, in, in caring for those in need, reaching out to those who, who need help, that we might be a people who are marked by a kindness and a benevolence and a grace and a love that would be difficult for, for folks to, to not in some way see you at work in us. Father, forgive us for when we have fallen into to fear or anxiety or bitterness over the outcome of an election or a bill that's been signed. Lord, help us to, to respond if there is a, an appropriate righteous anger toward evil. Help us to speak to that. But help us to do that as, as sinners ourselves who have received your grace and who wish to minister it to others. Lord, thank you for our government. Thank you that we have the, the freedom that we do to meet here this morning. We have no doubt that there are believers in other parts of the world that this very day have not been able to enjoy this sort of safety, this sense of security in meeting together. Father, we thank you that you are building your church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And so that even in hard places and hostile governments, that you are continuing to bring people to the knowledge of the Savior. Lord, help us to cherish the freedom that you have given us, to use it well, to stand for our King, to trust in you as our refuge and strength. And in all these things, we pray in Jesus' name.